morning. Um, do have your Bibles open at Romans 5. Um, I'm going to be dipping into it as we go along, so it's good if you've got your Bible open just so you can keep up with, with where we're at. Now, um, the other day, I, I caught myself in a, in a random thought. I, I don't know if this ever happens to you, where you suddenly find you're thinking about something, and then you think, why am I thinking about that? Where did that come from? Where did that start? The th- particular thing that I was thinking on th- that day as I was driving along the road was this. It was that they don't sell penny sweets at the co-op on Rose Avenue. And I suddenly thought, why am I thinking about that? And I, Now, fortunately, I was able to trace back, we can't always do this, but I was able to trace back my train of thought to where that started and where, where that's evolved from. And Actually, it started with seeing some joggers um, <coughs> who were running in the Penn Fun Run. And as we were going along, we saw a couple of, uh, the, a couple of our daughter's school friends running along with their parents. And um, so Suzanne, my wife, said, you know, hey, next year, girls, you could, we, we could run the fun run together. You, you could run it with mummy. And at that point, the girls reminded us of their previous experience of a fun run on the Rye, and that, in their opinion, the words fun and run really don't belong anywhere near each other, I have to say. I'm with them on that. But, um, and then one of them said, anyway, it would be better to do it with Daddy, um, because he would probably stop halfway around to get sweets. I don't know where they get that from. But, um, and so I started thinking about, oh, yeah, where would I stop to get sweets? And what, what are my favorite kinds of sweets? And oh, they don't sell those on the co-op on Rose Avenue. So that's where it came from. The point is, we can very easily get lost in thought, or we can get lost in conversation and find ourselves somewhere. We're not quite sure how we got there. And we can get very lost in this letter to the Romans. Um, now, thankfully, Paul's thinking is not nearly as obscure as, as mine is, but he, he is constructing in this whole letter a, a, a logical and lengthy argument that builds on it. You know, one bit builds on the next, the next bit builds on the next bit, and there's a, there's a progression through the letter. And lots of passages you'll find in the book of Romans, including the one we're looking at today, start with the word therefore, and, and that's Paul saying, because of everything I've just been telling you, now I'm going to tell you this, and this only really makes sense because of that, the thing I've just told you about. So to fully understand what he's saying at any point in this book of Romans, we really do need to understand what's gone before. We need to get his train of thought. It's essential for our understanding that we're able to track this argument through the book. And that's why we've obviously been preaching through it in order. But also we've been, as Ron said, doing these daily notes. And I hope some of you have been uh, benefiting from that. So Romans 5 starts with that word, therefore. Therefore, Paul's saying, because of everything I've told you, and he says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, since we've been justified through faith, in one line, Paul has just summed up everything he's just explained in the first four chapters. That, you know, mankind is in a terrible mess, that we suppress the truth about God, that that God's wrath is being poured out that we've been given over to the sinful desires of our heart. But, that glorious verse in Romans 3.21, but now a righteousness from God is being made known. And as we heard last week, how we are credited with that righteousness. When we put our trust in Jesus, we are credited with that righteousness, but only through faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. Not through anything else, not through anything we can do. All because of what Jesus has done, we can stand not guilty before God. That's justification. 
That's what it means. We have been justified through faith. With a debit column that is emptied and a very full credit column. But here in chapter 5, we take a bit of a change of course. We take a decisive turn from from focusing on the power of the gospel to make people right with God, to take sinners who are under the, the sentence of God's wrath and make them right with God. And now the focus turns to, well, what happens after that justification? So we're going from looking at um, what we've been rescued from, and now we're looking into, from this point on in the letter, what we've been rescued into, what we've been rescued for. So let's, let's dive into this. Straight away, uh, Paul gives us three Um, three realities, three benefits that justification by faith, that being made right with God brings to us. So the first one comes in verse one. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. That state of hostilities that existed between us and God has now gone And by the way, it's that state of hostilities that Paul explains in in the first couple of chapters. That's why it's so important, again, to understand what's come before. Because otherwise, this doesn't make sense. Peace with God? I didn't know I was at war with God. But if you read the first couple of chapters of Romans, I think you you, you start to understand that. But that state of hostilities, it's over. And this peace is forever. This peace lasts forever. And I think we've got to really know that. We've got to grasp it. Because I think when we think of peace in our world... It's a pretty fragile peace. It's an uncertain peace. It's a peace that really probably isn't going to last because another war is just around the corner. But peace with God, once you have it, is permanent. It can't be changed. It's forever. The matter has been definitively settled once and for all. So we have peace with God. And then he goes on in verse 2 where he says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have access into this grace in which we now stand. In Christ, when you are justified, you are ushered into the royal throne room. You stand in the royal throne room. Ron spoke about this a few months back when he spoke on Hebrews 4.16, that we can now have access to the throne of grace. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We stand in the royal throne room, and what's more, we remain there. You can't be moved. We remain there wherever you are, whatever you do. That goes beyond peace with God. Peace with God talks about the ending of something negative, the ending of hostility, but this is about the start of something positive and ongoing, and it's that relationship, it's that friendship with God, that we can go to him about anything And he hears us, and he he relates to us, and he's active in our lives. So we have, because of being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access to this grace in which we now stand. And then the third thing that Paul tells us is that, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is that? Well, that is that anticipation that as Christians we have of that future sharing of God's glory. And of course, when we talk about hope, Christian hope, it's not wishful thinking, it's not, I really hope this is going to happen. It's a hope-filled, joy-filled certainty. And the thing is, that comes third in the list, because actually what happens is when we experience that peace with God, and when we experience that grace to which we now have access, then our hope in God's glory grows. 
the more that hope grows, the more we long to see him face to face, the more certain, the more joyful we feel about the prospect of glory, the prospect of heaven. Because by itself, heaven's a pretty abstract concept. And actually, if we're honest, it hasn't, it's not always the most appealing. But when you taste when you taste a bit of that access that you have to God, when, you, when, you, when you're in his presence, when you encounter him, you want more. You just want more. Tim Keller says, once you realize how intoxicating it is just to have a couple of drops of his presence on your tongue, you will desire to drink from the fountainhead. And that desire, focus, and joyous certainty of the future is called the hope of glory. So because you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. You have access to grace. You have the hope of the glory of God. And that's a very, very quick overview of three pretty major theological themes. But Paul now takes a bit of an unexpected turn. So verse 3, and read verses 3 to 5. So he said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. The passage we're looking at today, the overall passage, isn't primarily about suffering. It's about joy. It's about justification. It's about hope. It's about assurance. But I think these couple of verses come as a bit of a a surprise, to be honest. You know, it's a bit like a a hidden jalapeno pepper on a bit of pizza. And you bite into it and you think, this tastes good. And then, whoa, what is that? It's like, why is Paul now talking in this list of things? Why is he now talking about suffering? So I think let's let's spend a bit of time here and just try and unravel what he means. Paul has outlined some of the amazing benefits that we have because of justification by faith. But what about when everything in life goes wrong? What about when life is hard or when things happen that cause a great deal of pain? What difference does it make? What difference does this peace and access to grace and hope of God's glory, what what difference do those things make then? Well, Paul is saying it makes all the difference, all the difference in the world. He's saying not only do we have these things, these, these benefits, these joys, but these things remain joys, even in sorrow, even in suffering, and they even help us to find joy. Increased joy, even in our sorrow. By the way, again, joy is different from happiness, what we mean by happiness or the pursuit of happiness. Because I think what we mean by that, that's all about us getting control of our lives so that we can keep circumstances favorable. So it's, I will be happy if. If this happens, I'll be happy. If, um, if I encounter success, if I have financial stability, if I can go on nice holidays, then I'll be happy. Or if I, if I have a family, if... I have a relationship. If my football team wins, not a lot of that going on at the moment. And of course, all those things can bring happiness and a sense of joy for a time, but it's not a joy that will last. It's temporary. Christian joy is not based in circumstances. It's based in God, who is unchanging. And it's based in what he's done for you, which will never change. And it's based in that hope, that certain hope of future glory. So Paul says we we can rejoice, we can find joy in our sufferings. And what does suffering mean for you? Just think about that for a minute. What does suffering mean for you? Because we all have different stories, we all live different lives, different things have happened in our lives. 
Suffering takes many different forms. There are different degrees of suffering. Some of us maybe haven't known an awful lot of suffering, and others have and are encountering a depth of suffering that you wouldn't wish on anybody. And I'm deliberately not giving specific examples here because what I don't want to do is maximize certain types of suffering and minimize other types of suffering. The danger of that, of course, is that everything I say now comes across a bit theoretical. Um, but my hope is that you can take the, the truth of God's word, the truth that, that we have here, and apply it into your situation, whatever that situation may be. But one thing that is absolutely clear is that as a Christian, you will know suffering of some type and to some degree or another. You will know some sort of suffering. The question with any type of suffering is how do you go through it? There's a couple of ways that these verses can very easily be misinterpreted that that I've just read out. One is to mistake rejoicing in suffering for rejoicing for suffering or rejoicing because of suffering, as in, ah, fantastic, you know, an opportunity to suffer. Praise God. No, that's not, that, there's another word for that, it's masochism. It's, it's masochism. Some people do this, though, actually. Maybe not consciously, but some people can do this. There's a, there can be a sense of reveling in feeling like a martyr. And that might be because, for some, they feel like they need to be punished in some way because of a sense of unworthiness or a sense of guilt. Or it might be about feeling uh, superior having a superior attitude to those who haven't gone through what you've gone through. You know, those shallow, superficial, ungrateful people who frankly have led a charmed life and don't really know what life is all about. Or for some, suffering can be just another form of trying to get justification by works. This sense that God owes you because you've had a hard life. So there can be, it is possible for there to be this kind of perverse pleasure in suffering that can lead some to become proud and superior, can lead others to become deeply cynical. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not the Christian message. Rejoicing in suffering doesn't mean there's any joy whatsoever in the troubles themselves, that the things that are actually happening are good. They're not. God hates that suffering, and so should we. We are not to celebrate suffering in our own lives or in others' lives. The other way that this can be misinterpreted is to take perseverance as meaning the same as stoicism, So a stoic, a person who is a stoic, faces suffering by gritting your teeth and getting through it. You know, just don't let it get you. Muddle on through. Keep a stiff upper lip. Pretend it's not happening. That's a British attitude to suffering. It's not a Christian one. To be a Christian doesn't mean being immune. It doesn't mean being invulnerable. And to be a Christian doesn't mean that we don't experience grief, hardship, difficulties. In fact, quite the opposite. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul, the same writer, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Here we have Paul saying, we are struck down, we're cast down, we are hard-pressed on every side, we're persecuted, but we're not crushed, and we're not destroyed. Christians can go through all the very worst things of life, and some of you have but we have something that others don't have. We have this hope in which we can rejoice during suffering, in the midst of suffering. It doesn't ignore the suffering, doesn't ignore the pain and just dismiss it and pretend that it's not there, but it's a hope that we have that is firm, it's solid, it's rooted when the rest of life is turbulent. And it's a hope that actually, Paul says in the end, is enhanced 
It's enlarged by suffering. So for the person who knows that they are justified by grace through faith and that alone, for the person who knows that, Paul says suffering starts this chain reaction. Suffering leads to perseverance. And the word here actually means single-mindedness. It means focusing on on what is certain, focusing on what is eternal, focusing on what's really important. So for a Christian to persevere doesn't mean just grit your teeth and get through it. It means fix your eyes on Jesus. It means continue to trust in him. Continue to trust in the one who has gone before you, the one who's gone ahead of you, who's already walked this path ahead of you, the one who can beckon you and show you the way. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And as we do that, as we persevere, as we focus on truth, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that leads to character. Character develops in us. Testedness develops in us. An inner confidence, an inner strength that comes from God. A kind of confidence that, that can only come through having been through something, been through an experience. And then all of that, perseverance, character, produces more hope. It leads to hope. A stronger assurance, a stronger confidence than you had before that you really do have peace with God, that you really do have access into this grace in which you now stand, that there really is this future glory that you will share in one day. Suffering removes any other sources of confidence and hope that you may have in your life that ultimately will disappoint you, ultimately will let you down, all those things I mentioned to do with happiness. And it's like gold being refined in the fire, in the furnace. All the impurities, all the dross is burnt away, and the gold emerges purer than it was before. Suffering is deeply unpleasant, but what it does is it drives us to our roots. It drives us to what is solid and true, to really look at what Jesus has done for us. It drives us to dependence on God and on his grace for us, to that one place where we can find true hope, true confidence, true certainty, and this is a hope that says in verse 5 that doesn't disappoint us. This is a hope that doesn't let you down. In the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, there are these three characters called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and um, they, they get thrown into a furnace because they refuse to worship other gods. And the king to prove a point, has this furnace heated super hot. I mean, really hot. And it's so hot, in fact, that the guards who go to throw these three guys in, the guards are killed by the heat simply coming out of the furnace. It's that hot. And the king is looking into the furnace, and of course, he's expecting to see these three um, screaming in agony and dying. That's what he's expecting to see. He doesn't see that. He sees, these, he sees these guys walking around, untouched by the heat. And not only that, he sees four people in there. And he says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And he calls them out, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out unharmed. They've been, they've been protected. They've, they had someone in there with them. When you go through suffering, it can feel like going into a furnace. But when you do, you think of Jesus who went into the furnace for you and the one who goes in with you. You're not alone. It's very easy to feel isolated in suffering because no one else understands. No one can understand what you, exactly what you are going through, but Jesus does. He really does understand because he suffered in unimaginable ways, in unfathomable ways. But the difference is in his suffering, 
he was alone. He was forsaken. He turned to pray, and there's no one there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was totally alone in the most unimaginable suffering. In your suffering, you are not alone. However deep that suffering is, you are not alone because he goes in with you. In fact, he went and he goes in before you. We sung it this morning. He goes before you and he's right there beside you, holding your hand through it all. Now, does that make it any less painful? No. It doesn't make it less painful. But as you share in Christ's suffering and you cling on to him and you hold on to what he has done for you and you look at him, you continue to look at him in your suffering, then that hope of future glory grows. The desire for it grows and the certainty of it grows. And your understanding of grace expands as you identify in part, just in part, with what Christ went through, with what Christ suffers, and you get a a deeper realization of what he suffered for you and that grace that was extended to you. And maybe something that was previously just intellectual, understanding of grace or Christ's suffering or the hope of future glory becomes something that you feel, becomes something you actually feel. Paul is saying here that the benefits of justification are not only not diminished by suffering, they're enlarged by it, they're enhanced by it. And suffering can't touch your joy because your joy is in something else. If, if you know you've been justified by faith, then the things that you lose in suffering, and that might be comfort, it might be health, it might be wealth, it might be human relationships, you know, though, that those, jo- those things are not where your joy is ultimately found. Painful, absolutely. But it's not where your joy is found. So a Christian can, without minimizing suffering, a Christian can look through Suffering to those things that are certain. But this chain reaction that Paul talks about, of course, it's not automatic. Because you do have to persevere. That's the first thing. You do have to persevere to get to that character and that increased hope. But if you face suffering, any situation in your life, with a mindset of justification by works, that you can somehow earn your salvation, then the chances are that suffering will break you you will assume that you are being punished for your sins and the suffering will drive you away from God rather than closer to him. It says in verse three, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know. Key word, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, hope, uh, character, character, hope. And that hope does not disappoint us. It says we know this and you've got to know it You've got to know that all of God's wrath for you was poured out on Jesus. There is none left for you. He's not seeking to punish you. He's not seeking to crush you. But he will use suffering to increase your hope. You've got to know that, though. You've got to know that suffering does lead to increased hope. Suffering, while it feels awful and terrible, it does lead to something good. That God really does work all things together for the good of those who love him, as it says in Romans 8.28. And you've got to know that hope in the first place. So the question is... How do we know? How do we know? How can we be sure? How how can we have that assurance of our salvation, past, present, and future? You know, how how do we know that we're not going to get to to the day of judgment and Jesus isn't going to say that, you know, I'm sorry, I never knew you? How can we have that assurance? How can we have that certainty of future glory? We'll have a look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, hope does not disappoint us, 
because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The first way that we can know, absolutely know, that God loves us is to experience that love through the Holy Spirit. He says he pours out his love, and it means what it sounds like it means. It's not just a drip, drip, drip. He pours out his love by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Every Christian has or should have that inner experience of God's love. Richard Sibbs was a 17th century English Puritan. He wrote this. He says, sometimes our spirits cannot stand in trials. Therefore, sometimes the immediate testimony of the spirit is necessary. It comes saying, I am thy salvation. And our hearts are stirred and comforted with joy inexpressible. And this joy has degrees. Sometimes it's so clear and strong that we question nothing. Other times doubts come in soon. We need to know that inner witness of the Holy Spirit who calls you by name, who knows you intimately, who says, you are mine. You are mine. You are loved. I am with you. You are my son. You are my, you are my daughter, my precious one. And I will never, ever let you go. We need to know that inner witness. But of course, we know that that doesn't always last. And Richard Sibbs, in that quote, he said it. He said, sometimes this joy has degrees. Sometimes it is so clear and strong that we question nothing, but other times doubts come in soon. We know that the feelings are not constant. Doubts can come in. Sometimes we need something more than that subjective experience of God's love through the Holy Spirit. We need more than that. Sometimes we need something objective to hang on to, some evidence, some firm evidence that somebody loves us. Now, those of you who are married can probably remember those kind of slightly nervous days when you were going out with each other and when you were engaged, and maybe there was that niggling doubt, does she really love me? Will she turn up on that day? It's just that niggling, niggling little doubt. Well, I remember when, I remember when we were going out, when Suzanne and I were going out. Um, now, to describe, <laughs> now, to describe my attempts at romantic courtship as inept uh, would be to significantly understate the case. Um, our first date, which neither of us actually knew whether it was a date or not. We, we were both thinking, is this, are there going to be other people there? Or it turns out it was just the two of us, but that's not a great start. But um, we went to the cinema to see a film, and the film was called What Lies Beneath. And What Lies Beneath is a kind of psychological horror <laughs> kind of thing where faces suddenly appear in the water, and it makes you... It's not your classic date film. <laughs> Second date. And I think we still weren't really acknowledging whether this was a date or not. But we went to the pub, and you think, okay, that's better. That's a bit safer. You can just chat and get to know each other a bit. Problem is, I had a cold, and I, I, mean, I, mean, I had a stinking, stinking cold. And so my nose was literally dripping. <laughs> okay, so I was either sitting there with a hanky held up to my nose, and if I removed it, there is literally a stream of watery snot. <laughs> and when I sneezed... <laughs> so that was our second date. Third date, we thought, yeah, we had a romantic evening in. I think by this point, we were starting to think maybe there's something in this. Romantic evening in watching a video, which sounds nice. But again, the video that we watched was Gladiator, um, <laughs> which has lots of blood and, and death in it. So um, let's fast forward a few months to amazingly got to this point of proposing. And um, when I proposed, when I asked her to marry me, it wasn't in Paris. 
It wasn't on a nice countryside walk. It wasn't even in a nice restaurant. It was in my lounge with a cheese and pickle sandwich. <laughs> and I managed to phrase my proposal in the negative <laughs> by saying, can you think of any reason why we shouldn't get married? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, she is one lucky lady. <laughs> So when Suzanne walks down the aisle on her wedding day, I'm thinking, she must really love me. <laughs> she must really love me. If she's put up with all of that in my, my utter ineptitude, how much more will she stick with me in marriage? There is a point to that you'll find out in a minute. Paul knows that we don't always feel that inner witness of the Holy Spirit, that we don't always live in that subjective experience of God's love. So he gives us something else. He gives us something objective to hang on to, objective evidence of God's love for us. So verse 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the most amazing phrases in scripture. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can know, you, you can know that God loves you because of the death of Jesus and the fact he didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. He died for us while we're still his enemies. On the 4th of December 2006, there was a 19-year-old American soldier called Ross McGuinness and he was manning the turret on his armored vehicle as they were doing a patrol in East Baghdad in, in Iraq. And suddenly, a hand grenade fell into the vehicle. It had been thrown from a rooftop by an Iraqi insurgent. And Ross McGuinness knew that all his crew were about to die, because there was no time for them to get out before that grenade went off. He could have jumped clear, but instead he jumped down, and he threw his body on the grenade to smother the explosion. And he died instantly, of course, but the rest of his crew survived. Now, unlike that Iraqi grenade, God's wrath towards us was completely justified. And unlike the crew of Ross McGuinness's armored vehicle, we were Jesus' enemies. We were not his friends. If you can picture Ross McGuinness throwing himself on a grenade to save a bunker full of Iraqi insurgents, you get a bit closer, just a bit but a bit closer to what it meant for Jesus to shield us from the wrath of God with his beaten up, disfigured, mangled body. While we were still sinners, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. So you can know beyond doubt. If you ever have any doubts, you get them out because you can know beyond any doubt that God loves you. If he did that for you, you can know you can know it for sure, even if you're experiencing feelings or circumstances that might cause you to doubt. The evidence is there. That also means, of course, that you can be absolutely 100% sure of your future salvation, that future glory. Verse 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How much more? If he was able to save us while we were hostile to him, how much more will he continue to do that and to completion now that we're his friends? If he was able to, uh, if he didn't give up on you when you were at war with him, how much more is he going to stick with you now that we have peace? The God who brought us into faith will keep us going in that faith even through hard times. The God who opened up heaven to us will ensure that we get there. You can live, and God means for you to live, with that assurance of your salvation, past, present, and future. You can live with assurance. You may be encountering suffering. You may not be. But wherever you are at in your life, if you have been justified by grace through faith, then you have peace with God. And it's a peace that will never end. You you have access to God's grace in which you now stand and in which you will remain. You, You have access to the throne of grace. You have that hope, that certainty of sharing in God's glory. You have a deep joy that can't be touched by circumstances. And in all of this, you can live with that utter assurance that God loves you, that your destiny is secure, that you can do nothing to earn his love, nothing to add to his salvation, that all his wrath for you was poured out on Jesus. There's none left for you. But the question is this, do you know it? Do you have that assurance? Do do you know it? Let's stand together, please.